Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 60 of the 30 Years' War. In the last episode, a bit of a while ago, we saw the great and terrible reversals of the Allied cause. As Bernard of Saxe-Weimar and his Swedish ally, Gustav Horn, were soundly defeated at the Battle of Nordlingen on the 7th of September, 1634. This was the triumph that Emperor Ferdinand II had been waiting for. The Emperor's forces had not triumphed so extensively since the Danes had been trounced at the 1626 Battle of Luther. After more than four years of creeping Swedish supremacy, indeed with all the cruel and anxious reverses that had gone with it, it was probably hard for Vienna to remember what military supremacy looked like. For Emperor Ferdinand, though, it was like riding a bike. He hadn't forgotten how to make best use of a victory. It was vital to act quickly and turn that military triumph into a political one through the detachment of Sweden's major Protestant allies, which at last seemed possible. This would be done with the Peace of Prague, formalised on the 30th of May, 1635. The road to such a peace was paved with the death of Swedish ambitions in Germany and Axel Oxenstierna's grim determination to cling on to what remained of Sweden's army, commanded by Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar along the Rhine, and Johann Banner at the Elbe, who briskly retreated to hold Pomerania. With Johann Banner surrounded shortly thereafter by hostile Germans, and Bernhard angling for stark rewards from the wealthiest paymaster he could find, it was plain to Oxenstierna and, of course, to Cardinal Richelieu, that Swedish influence in the empire and its ability to project its power had been fatally compromised by Nordlingen. At a stroke, it seemed, the emperor had achieved his own Breitenfeld, and nor was that all. The participation of the Spanish in that battle suggested that the two fronts were about to spill over and contaminate the other. Indeed, perhaps the Dutch war with Spain and the Swedish war with the emperor had been contained for too long. Perhaps all that was needed was the intervention of the French to formalise this fusing of the two conflicts into one greater Thirty Years' War. Time would tell, but in this episode, we examine the events from late 1634 to spring 1635, when the Peace of Prague was incepted, and Sweden was at a loss to explain how the triumphs of the late great Gustavus had been erased in fewer than two years 
Axel Oxenstierna had experienced the greatest highs of the Thirty Years' War, and he had watched awestruck as his king had transformed not merely the nature of the conflict, but the fortunes of Sweden. Gustavus Adolphus would be immortalised as the man who made the Swedish Empire, and if Oxenstierna failed now, he would be the Chancellor that lost it. The schizophrenic nature of the war had delivered such momentous highs and lows for the imperial and Swedish cause, and the fortunes of war now flowed firmly in favour of the emperor. The important question in the aftermath of such a devastating defeat was how Oxenstierna would react. How would he respond to this latest turning point of the war, and could his actions prevent the worst consequences from being realised? Oxenstierna had seen how a single battle could change the whole narrative. Now that he was on the other end of this changing narrative, Sweden would be preserved or torn asunder based on how the Chancellor decided to react. It was a formidable challenge, but that the Swedish Chancellor proved equal to the task of what essentially amounted to damage control explains why Sweden remained such an active participant in the conflict until 1648, and how the Swedish Empire was maintained for much longer. None of this was certain in the autumn of 1634, though. The old problems of unpaid soldiery, unreliable allies and strategic disadvantages remained acute, and had only been exacerbated by the shattering loss. Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar made his way to Heilbronn with the remnants of his army, some 14,000 men in all. The great misfortune is so bad it could not be any worse, as the gloomy note he forwarded to Oxenstierna said. That gloom was contagious, as news of the loss spread to Frankfurt on the Main, where many of the delegates for the Heilbronn League had made their base. Utterly despondent at the loss, several of these delegates for this Heilbronn League the Heilbronn League, we'll recall, was set up by Oxenstierna to curry favour and influence on Sweden's behalf among the Germans, and basically to organise them all. But, having learned of this loss, several of them became despondent and packed up their belongings and fled the city. Oxenstierna urged them to stay and to help arrange a defence along the Main River, which could serve as an effective barrier between the imperial and Swedish spheres of Germany. But his requests fell on deaf ears, and before long the Imperials had arrived, targeting several of the more important bastions along the winding Main River, such as Würzburg and Schweinfurt. The Imperial army felt content to divide and conquer. Stuttgart fell on the 19th of September, Württemberg was totally overwhelmed, and the Hessian Duke, who had conquered it for Sweden, beat a hasty retreat. Even a long-time ally of the Swedes, William of Hesse-Castle, was close to apoplectic, and noted in November, The House of Austria wishes to subjugate all of Germany, extirpating liberty and the reformed religion, so in this extremity we must look to France. Before France could be looked to, though, the focus turned to Bavaria and the Palatinate. One by one in autumn 1634, the breathtaking pace of Sweden's conquests in the region were undone by the Imperials, with Regensburg and Donauwörth falling in October and Heidelberg, the late Winter King's capital, captured on 19th of November, leaving only its citadel to hold out. That same month, a secret mission by representatives of the Heilbronn League had been sent to Paris, where they made extensive concessions to France in return for French control of their body, to the detriment of the reeling Swedes who would effectively be pushed out.
When Oxenstierna learned of these approaches by his erstwhile allies in December, he determined to absolve himself of the fiction of leadership of the Heilbronn League, never to return. There seemed to be next to nothing Oxenstierna could do to stem the tidal wave of military losses. It was akin to the collapse of the Imperials after Breitenfeld, or the surrender of Bavaria after the River Lech. And more uncomfortable parallels were to be found in the men that Oxenstierna was forced to rely on. While he had been defeated, Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar seemed like the only military leader with some grasp of the situation. Gustav Horn, Bernhard's peer during Nordlingen, had been captured by the Imperials, while Johann Banner was cementing his position in a defendable enclave in Pomerania. Bernard of Weimar withdrew his army from Heilbronn to make a base in Alsace on the left bank of the Rhine, where the friendly neutrality of France could be depended on. Yet even there he was not safe. While moving to Worms, where the remaining Heilbronn delegates had convened on the 2nd of December 1634, Bernard was made aware of the mobilisation of the Habsburg resources along the Rhine. Leading the charge was the dispossessed Duke Charles of Lorraine, whose appearance in the imperial camp suggested that an open breach between the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of France loomed. This surely meant even greater opportunities of employment for Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar. After all, if Sweden collapsed, he would have no qualms about switching his loyalties to that of France, as later events proved. Just as devastating for Oxenstierna as the military setbacks were the political gunshots which were fired across Sweden's bow. One significant outcome of Nordlingen was the new opportunity granted to Cardinal Richelieu to fill the power vacuum that Sweden had left behind, and to fill it, of course, with the French. As William of Hesse Castle, quoted above, had recognised in November 1634, German Protestants had little choice than to rely on the promises of the French king, and yet France had not yet officially involved itself in the German war. As the historian A. Lloyd Moot recognised in his biography of King Louis XIII, unless France intervened, Nordlingen spelled the end of the German war to the advantage of the emperor. Hence, Richelieu, with greater reluctance but keen understanding, worked toward two new alliances that would prevent Habsburg hegemony at the price of bringing on the war that had been avoided in 1631. It was necessary to prepare the political ground in Europe before France committed itself wholly to intervention in Germany. It was also to be expected that in the showdown between the Bourbon and Habsburg dynasties, peace would not come to Germany for some time. And yet, the considerations of France had not been foremost in the mind of the elector of Saxony, John George, when he signed the preliminaries of Perna ten weeks after the Battle of Nordlingen. These agreements between John George of Saxony and Emperor Ferdinand brought to life the possibility which Oxenstierna had for so long feared, that Saxony would abandon Sweden in its hour of need, and that Brandenburg, Hesse-Darmstadt and other renowned German Protestant powers would follow suit. Indeed, the preliminaries at Perna were merely the first step towards what was perceived as the final German peace. The terms were established from an early stage. John George would receive Lusatia, that province of the Kingdom of Bohemia which he had been handed in 1620 to buy his loyalty to the Emperor. 
In return, John George would recognise Maximilian of Bavaria's receipt of the Palatinate, along with the title it accrued. But that was not all. John George would also have to recognise a religious state of affairs in the empire, which was dated to November 1627. This normative date amounted to a turning back of the clock for Protestants and Catholics alike. The Habsburgs' thumping gains in Germany up to that point would be preserved, but the Edict of Restitution, interestingly, which had followed in 1629, would be suspended for 40 years. In practice, the Edict would be effectively abandoned. This was Ferdinand's great concession, it has to be said, and it removed in the process a major gripe in the Saxon camp. In February 1635, Emperor Ferdinand was busy meeting with his theologians and advisers regarding these peace terms. Of the 24 men assembled, only six voted against the limited concessions made to the Saxons. Nordlingen was seen as a blessing from God, as vindication of the Emperor's faith in the Catholic cause, and as proof of the wisdom of removing Wallenstein. However, it had also been a desperately urgent victory amidst a sea of uninspired defeat and retreats. Just as easily as the supremacy now returned to the Habsburgs, it could be taken away with another Breitenfeld. Ferdinand and the majority of his councillors were therefore moved to be cautious and conciliatory. They had apparently learned their lessons of the last few years. If lessons had been learned in Ferdinand's court, it also seemed like a corner had been turned. No longer were radical Catholics in control of imperial policy, and no longer would Germans be pitted against one another with religion as the major source of the division. The suspension of the Edict of Restitution certainly aided this development, but it was also true that Vienna had come to appreciate the importance of making peace with Saxony before the French arrived. The road to the Peace of Prague, signed on the 30th of May 1635, was paved with the diplomatic contacts first established between the Emperor and the Saxon elector in spring 1632. Throughout 1633, with Wallenstein's numerous ceasefires making further dialogue possible, the position of Saxony was teased out, but John George, typically enough, couldn't contemplate abandoning Sweden so long as the Swedes seemed to be the stronger power. Nordlingen changed all that and enabled John George to depart from the Swedish alliance that had first been formulated in September 1631. John George had empowered Hans-Georg von Arnhem to negotiate in his stead, and the removal of Wallenstein in February 1634, to be replaced by Ferdinand III in late spring, granted the Saxon a unique opportunity to negotiate directly with the imperial court. The more moderate, pragmatic tone of the imperial negotiators, headed by the emperor's more realistic son and heir, indicated that greater progress could be made, but again, Nordlingen made it all possible. At Perna in November, the bare bones were laid down, and on the 28th of February 1635, a truce was signed at the town of Laun, which formally brought Saxony out of the war. George William of Brandenburg, Saxony's weaker neighbour, weaker at least for now, was not slow in following. George William's resentment over the seizure of Pomerania by Sweden and his fear of being left to face the wrath of the emperor alone proved compelling reasons indeed to follow suit. When news of these truces reached Oxenstierna, he could have no illusions over what it meant. The two Protestant electors could not be expected to rely on a mere truce for long, 
and formal arrangements would surely follow. Sweden's position as leader of Germany's Protestants had already been usurped by France in November 1634. All Oxenstierna possessed was the unreliable Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar on the Rhine and Johann Banner in Pomerania. Clearly, French acceptance of leadership of the Heilbronn League would pull France further into Germany and potentially into conflict with the emperor himself. There was already significant, abundant signals sent out by Paris that she did not intend to remain aloof from the conflict for long. In March 1635, a French army overran the Valtelline, thereby severing the route connecting Spain's Italian possessions with those of Austria by basically taking over those Alpine passes. To further compromise the Habsburg ability to reinforce its possessions, control over Alsace was increased, thus removing a vital land route between Lombardy and Flanders. The Spanish road was all but cut, but Richelieu was eager to do more than exacerbate Spain's supply problems, so on the 8th of February 1635, an alliance with the Dutch was formalised. Greater subsidies were provided to the Dutch, and a provision for the partition of the Spanish Netherlands was even made. With her ally in the war against Spain secured, Richelieu then turned to securing Sweden for the conflict with the Emperor. It was not believed possible to refrain from attacking one branch of the Habsburg family. France would be going all in, as Richelieu himself later noted. It is a sign of singular prudence to have held down the forces opposed to your state for a period of ten years with the forces of your allies, by putting your hand in your pocket and not on your sword. Then, when your allies can no longer resist without you, to engage in open warfare is a sign of courage and great wisdom. Plainly, France's allies could no longer exist without them by spring 1635, and in recognition of this on the 28th of April, France formalised its alliance with the Heilbronn League and Sweden in the Treaty of Compiègne. A provision of this alliance moved France to make a public declaration of war on Spain and Austria as soon as possible. Already, 12,000 French soldiers had been promised to the Germans for the 1635 campaign, and Heidelberg's citadel had been relieved by a force of French soldiers, who effectively saved this final bastion of the Palatinate from falling into Habsburg hands. As had happened in previous Franco-Swedish negotiations, though, much was left undefined until a later date. Oxenstierna, the poor guy, was left to sweat, almost certainly in a literal sense, as the Swedish Chancellor met with his French counterpart in person to hammer this treaty out. We're told that Richelieu found Oxenstierna a bit gothic and very wily, and we imagine there was some semblance of genuine respect, as these two leaders of the anti-Hasburg cause knew they would have to cooperate. Perhaps it is worth remembering the Cardinal's warnings regarding the pitfalls of diplomacy when it was in less capable hands, as Richelieu has written. Just as ignoramuses are not good negotiators, so there are certain minds so finely drawn and delicately organised as to be even less well-suited, since they become overly subtle about everything. They are, so to speak, like those who break the points of needles by trying to make them too fine. For the best results, it is necessary that men hold themselves to a middle course. The most successful ones 
use their keenness of mind to prevent themselves from being deceived, having a care not to use the same means for deceiving those with whom they are negotiating. But Oxenstierna was himself no ignoramus, and his delicate diplomatic style and penchant for thoroughness had singled him out long ago as Sweden's premier statesman, more than equal to the task of meeting with France's foremost cardinal. The problem was not Oxenstierna's shortcomings, but the weaknesses of Sweden's position, which were becoming more pronounced by the month. It was no secret by April 1635 that Sweden had lost its military supremacy in Germany and that its very presence south of the Main River was no more. Elsewhere in Germany, hostility towards the Swede was increasing due to the changing tide of opinion and desire for a general peace. To German figures like John George of Saxony, Maximilian of Bavaria, George William of Brandenburg and many others, the sole power now standing in the way of a final peace after more than 15 years of war in the Holy Roman Empire was Sweden. Surely, the combined might of all of Germany, save for some recalcitrant traitors, would be enough to rid the empire of the foreign invader. Indeed, this may have been so, but it was a state of affairs which France absolutely could not allow, for in its looming showdown with the Habsburgs in Austria and Spain, it was imperative that another power was made to carry the burden of war in the empire. Powerful though she was, France couldn't carry this burden alone. Evidently, Nordlingen had moved Richelieu to step up his interventionist plans and become bolder. In the space of six months, therefore, writes Geoffrey Parker, France had skillfully located her enemies before launching an attack on several fronts. Conveniently, for Richelieu, there was even a handy excuse for involving France in the war, provided by the aggressive policy of the Spanish. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before we go any further, history friend, I should let you know, this podcast is on Patreon, and for a fiver a month, you could be getting an awful lot of extra audio goodies, including a 
biography series on Jan Sobieski, Poland's last great king, a series looking at the Suez Crisis of 1956, another series looking at the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 1700s, and how their gradual decline, well, led to that country circling the drain by the middle of that century. These series have been made thanks to your guys' support, and for the fact that I was able to work full-time on this podcast before starting the PhD, I really appreciate you continuing to support me, and those patrons who have done so have really made the PhD possible, and I look forward to breaking out of these constraints and just focusing more on this podcast when I get a chance. But until I do, this support really keeps me going. So thanks for putting up with these plugs, and thanks for listening in. Without your support, all of this would be much more difficult to justify and pull off, and probably I wouldn't be able to afford the PhD in the first place. So yes, this really is all down to you. You could almost say that the affection I feel for you, history friend, is as strong as that which the Cardinal Infant Ferdinand felt for his cousin, also called Ferdinand. So let's get back to their story now and see how they got on. Following his triumphant campaign at Nordlingen, the Cardinal Infant Ferdinand was urged by the Emperor to remain in Germany and aid Austria with its war effort. Unfortunately for Emperor Ferdinand, though, the Cardinal Infant had been given a job to do by Madrid. Since the death of Isabella, the Archduchess of the Spanish Netherlands and aunt of the King of Spain in December 1633, this beleaguered portion of Spain's European empire had been rudderless and subject to constant intrigues from the Dutch. Frederick Henry, the military and political leader of the Dutch Republic, engaged in a few initiatives throughout 1634, but the triumph of Nordlingen would certainly have stung, as would the news that the star of that battlefield, the Cardinal Infant, was on his way to Brussels to serve as the new governor of that province. The arrival of such a dynamic figure could only re-energise the war party in The Hague and make them more agreeable to a treaty with France, which as we saw was formally signed in February 1635. Perhaps it was because of this re-energised Spanish command that Spanish forces increased their activity along the Rhine. On the 26th of March, the electorate of Trier was invaded by the Spanish and its archbishop taken prisoner. We may recall that during the early successes of Gustavus Adolphus, several electoral German leaders had welcomed French protection rather than take their chances with the Swedes. Among those who had sought early French protection was this elector of Trier, as the historian David Parrott explained. Despite the ambiguous attitudes of his subjects, the elector of Trier himself had been one of the earliest and most consistent adherents of French protection. His abduction was an outright challenge to the credibility of French military and political guarantees, and demanded a French response. After several months of manoeuvring, of formulating alliances with the Dutch and Swedes, and securing their frontier along the Rhine through the subjugation of Alsace and Lorraine, it was abundantly clear to Cardinal Richelieu and his king that this deliberate act of provocation could only be answered one way, through war. As Richelieu stated, Kings should be very careful with regard to the treaties they conclude, but having concluded them, they should observe them religiously. I well know that many statesmen advise to the contrary, but without considering here what the Christian religion offers in answer to such advice, 
I maintain that the loss of honour is worse than the loss of life itself. A great prince should sooner put in jeopardy both his own interests and even those of the state than break his word, which he can never violate without losing his reputation and by consequence the greatest instrument of sovereigns. The treaty with the Elector of Trier was being called into question by the Spanish and thus the honour of King Louis XIII was on the line. According to his own principles, let alone the traditions of the era, Richelieu could do no other than advise his king to act. The time had come to transform the cold, covert war between the houses of Bourbon and Habsburg into an open struggle. On the 19th of May 1635, a royal herald was sent to Brussels, making official the Franco-Spanish War. It would not end in Richelieu's lifetime, or even within the boundaries of the Thirty Years' War. That said, it represented a critical step towards the widening of the conflict, which had for so long been threatened, and was now made fact. The open intervention of France in the war against Spain meant that the conflict ceased to be one defined merely by the latest intervening power. Instead, thanks to the French Act, there was now a veritable coalition of states pitted against the Habsburg influence, in Germany and in Flanders and all across the world. The age of interventions was over, and the age of coalitions had thus begun. It is unclear whether news of the erupting war between Spain and France reached those assembled at Prague in the month of May 1635. The news was certainly ominous, but it did not necessarily mean that war between France and the Emperor was at hand. There was time first to bring to an end the war between the Emperor and his vassals. The Peace of Prague was published on the 30th of May 1635, and represents, in the first place, a watershed moment in a year of watershed moments. It severed the partnership between many of the most important German princes with the invading foreign powers, and it also compelled them to defend this German fatherland against the invader through war. It was, therefore, not merely a declaration of their intentions to make peace, but also a statement of intent by all concerned to do all in their power to rid the Holy Roman Empire of the cruel invader. At its core, the Peace of Prague aimed at bringing peace between the Protestant north of Germany, led by Saxony, and the Catholic south, led by the Emperor and Maximilian of Bavaria. It intended to heal the rifts of recent years by making official the transfer of lands and titles and freezing the delicate state of church lands at November 1627, which struck an acceptable balance. Of most concern to us was Article 35, which proclaimed, Concerning the foreign potentates and nations, in particular the crowns of France, Sweden and others, who were neither imperialist states nor members of the empire, nor are currently recognised as such, nor were once formerly, and do not accept this peace, nor will abide by it, his Electoral Highness of Saxony, together with other adherents of the Augsburg Confession, electors and estates, if they wish to enjoy this peace, must assist his Roman Majesty and the Catholics with their entire strength, without any delay, to restore and recover peace by the power of this treaty, as well as the general public peace and imperial ordinances, and discuss the ways and means to implement the peace agreement. It was not just a peace treaty then, it was also a contract which bound all loyal Germans to make war on the invader under the Emperor's command for as long as it took. For this to work, the Emperor recognised it was necessary to forgive what had been done in the past, 
as Article 54 declared. There is complete amnesty between, on the one side, his Roman Imperial Majesty and allied Catholic electors and estates, and on the other, his Electoral Highness and all other adherents of the Augsburg Confession, who were previously at war, provided they fully accept this peace and its implementation, with ten days of notification of its publication, without delay. It was therefore ruled... This covers all that has passed between them during the war since the arrival of the King of Sweden on imperial soil in 1630, and annuls all disagreement, displeasure and opposition, regardless of how it occurred, so that neither side shall think further ill of the other, nor threat or use action or the law against the other. In particular, the Emperor and his allies will not claim war costs or damages from the adherents of the Augsburg Confession, who do likewise with his Imperial Majesty. There would be exemptions from all this lovely amnesty, though. For one, the Palatine family. Because their suppression caused his imperial majesty and his house such heavy burdens and forced them to leave behind and abandon several hereditary lands, the Holy Roman Emperor was therefore entitled to wrest compensation from them, though the Winter Queen's offspring could claim a pension from the Emperor so long as they submitted. Article 64 thus stressed, The high necessity, as well as duty, love and loyalty to the fatherland, as well as the solemn duty and oath binding them to his Roman Imperial Majesty and the Holy Empire, to exhort them to publish the current peace treaty in their territory, and to accept and observe all its points, and then to actually withdraw his soldiers from his neighbour's lands, without thereby doing anyone any harm, and to combine these troops with his Imperial Majesty's army, and to maintain no more soldiers than are necessary to garrison their fortified places. In addition, upon acceptance of this peace treaty, they are to report how many troops can join the Imperial Army, and what condition they are currently in. It was thus a multi-layered peace, not merely a call to all loyal Germans, but also something of an ultimatum, and, also on top of this, a kind of census. If Germans adhered to its terms, Vienna would be furnished with up-to-date details on how many soldiers they could call upon and their location, so that the defence of Germany could be made much easier. While the document represented a challenge to all Germans to once more choose between God or the devil with terrible consequences, the choice was made much easier and more palatable by the notable relaxation of religious rhetoric which had characterised earlier attempts at peacemaking. The historian Robert Byerly effectively summarised the Peace of Prague when he wrote Despite its failure to provide a permanent settlement for the problems of the Empire, the Peace of Prague was of major significance for German history. It was a milestone on the way toward religious toleration in Germany, inasmuch as it ended the most aggressive phase of the Counter-Reformation in the Empire. It was both a return to the moderate Catholic policy set by Ferdinand I at the time of the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, and an anticipation of the 1648 Peace of Westphalia. The Peace of Prague was the grave of the militant ideology that arose in the wake of White Mountain and played a decisive role in the middle period of the Thirty Years' War. The crusading spirit that had departed from Spain and Rome to move north was now put to rest in Germany as well. The belief that Emperor Ferdinand had been specially selected by God and promised assistance to lead the church to complete triumph in the empire, 
was no longer to be an effective factor in the formulation of policy. This does not mean that in the future the emperor would overlook the welfare of the church. Both Ferdinand II and his son, Ferdinand III, would endeavour to secure all possible benefits to her. But the principle had been established, or perhaps better, re-established, that concessions could be of greater advantage to both church and empire. When rational analysis showed this to be the case, they could be made without fear of betraying a divine mission or failing to trust in the Lord. The moderates had gained the upper hand, and they were not to relinquish it. One of the most notable omissions from the Peace of Prague was any reference to giving foreign powers satisfaction. On the contrary, as Article 35 had established, these powers would be forcibly ejected if they wouldn't make peace, and satisfaction was never to be on the table. Thus, the historian Richard Bonney called it a Habsburg-dominated treaty, which refused any concessions to Sweden or its dwindling band of exiled Calvinist princes, and added, the settlement excluded Calvinists from legal rights under the imperial constitution. The political implications of the Peace of Prague had not escaped Richelieu's notice. The Elector of Saxony has made his peace, the Cardinal wrote, but that will have no effect on us, save to make us renew our efforts to keep all in train. Rather than facilitate peace, indeed, the Peace of Prague guaranteed the continuation of the war, and on a scale probably not fully appreciated at the time by the German signees. Their intention had been to end the war in Germany by banding together and accepting the Emperor's concessions, but instead they were now compelled to rid Germany of all enemies, which included Sweden, but also France. And, wrote C.V. Wedgwood, if they closed in conflict with France, they must make common cause with the King of Spain. In other words, Wedgwood concluded... The Peace of Prague was metamorphosed into an alliance for war, and those who signed it bound themselves to fight the battle of the House of Austria. And just in time, too, for with the direct intervention of France against Spain, the aged Emperor Ferdinand II needed his German vassals by his side now more than ever. It was only a matter of time before the French declared against the Empire too. After so many years of dismal confusion, a sense of clarity had finally been applied to the situation. As the summer of 1635 beckoned, the new battle lines were drawn. All the resources of the Habsburg dynasty, in Austria and in Spain, would be pitted against those of France, Sweden and the Dutch. The wars of the last few decades had finally congealed and coalesced, as though according to some well-orchestrated plan, when in fact... They had been forged and borne out by the unpredictable highs and lows of the Thirty Years' War. That's going to do it for this episode, history friends and patrons. Thanks so much for listening. And be sure to join me next time and in the very near future as we take a little bit of time to celebrate when diplomacy fails us 10-year birthday. Don't worry. There's no 10 weeks to run wild on the way, but there are some special episodes that I think you guys will find pretty darn tasty. Thanks for listening. My name is Zach, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.